I hope you can't hear those seagulls right now because they're going crazy. <laughs> it's uh, a lovely backdrop. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. If they carry on, I won't have to say something. Um... <laughs> Welcome back to the Clean Sailors Podcast. Let's talk about sea, marine, sailing, and keeping it clean. I'm your host, Holly, founder of Clean Sailors, and a sailor myself with a passion for the health of our mighty oceans. Through conversations with experts, innovators, and activists, all working towards improving the health of our seas, we're showcasing the people and projects changing the way things are done. Climate change is occurring, we know, as a result of many factors, but greatly aided by the greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, which we've been pumping into our air for now, well, a couple of hundred years. For decades, we've talked about and turned to trees, green carbon, in an attempt to help moderate climate change. Whether rainforest protection, mass tree planting and restrictions on deforestation around the world, our efforts around green carbon have been many and arguably are now well understood. But what about blue carbon and the plant species and systems beneath our waterline that rapidly and consistently capture CO2? What are these species and just how effective are they in moderating climate change and in keeping our planet in balance? Let's find out more about blue carbon by speaking with Lucy McMahon, PhD researcher at the University of York, coastal and marine scientist and absolute ocean optimist. Lucy, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here. Not at all. It's, dare I say, it, the pleasure is I feel more on our side, given this topic and, and just how interesting it is. And I appreciate you're one of the best people to be speaking to. Just to help demystify a little bit what blue carbon is and what it really means. We've heard, obviously, over the last few years, blue carbon becoming more prevalent, whether it's in media or research. And I think we're starting to understand a bit more about the assets of blue carbon but perhaps we can start with what is blue carbon like what does it mean yeah absolutely so blue carbon just simply refers to carbon that's captured and stored by marine and coastal ecosystems so the term blue really imaginative just refers to the presence of the ocean or the sea so the term itself was actually coined back in 2009 and um, so it has you know it's relatively new now but it has been around since about 2009 and it was essentially just just to recognize just how incredible these coastal habitats are at capturing and storing carbon, particularly when we compare them to their terrestrial counterparts like trees, which we traditionally think of when we think of nature-based solutions to climate change. And that's, in some ways, I'm really surprised that it's 2009. I know it technically mm. is over a decade ago, but that still seems so new. It's kind of this side of the millennium. And I think you're right, we always think about rainforests and planting trees and carbon capture, but We've obviously taken a little bit longer to put our heads underwater and understand really what that whole ecosystem, and I should say variety of ecosystems, right, mm-hmm. are doing for the health of our planet. So what are some examples of blue carbon ecosystems? Yeah, so when we do talk about blue carbon, we're mainly referring to three main habitats. So we've got mangrove forests, salt marshes and seagrasses. So collectively, these three are known as coastal wetlands. 
We find them all around coastlines around the world, but particularly here in the UK, we get salt marshes and seagrasses. So as you move out towards the tropics, salt marshes become replaced by mangroves. But then you do for our seagrasses, depending on where you are in the world, the temperate regions or the tropical regions, you get different species of seagrass there. So what I do find really cool about these blue carbon habitats is that, you know, they occupy this really narrow margin around coastlines around the world. But if you were to put them all together, they occupy less than 1% of the ocean surface area, but they contribute, you know, 50% of the carbon that's buried in marine sediments. So that's, you know, it's a pretty big deal. So very impressive habitats. That is huge. I mean, proportionally, that feels like they, for the actual, as you mentioned, surface of our planet they cover, they've got a disproportionately high impact on carbon storage and actually removal. When we were talking about living ecosystems here, right? So they are living and breathing as we are day to day. So this is an active process, right? Ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating, appreciating seagrasses in particular. You know, we've got these awesome meadows on land, which we go great lengths to protecting, but these are meadows too beneath beneath the waterline. And I think one of the things you mentioned around sort of carbon storage and us sort of just beginning to understand it. I mean, these are also because they're shallow water traditionally, they play great roles also in protecting our coastlines, right? I mean, yeah. whether it's like buffering sort of incoming waves and storms, helping to reduce the intensity of waves on our coastlines, coastline erosion. Yeah, for sure. So that that's that's one of the things, you know, we're we are raving about blue carbon and climate change mitigation with these habitats at the moment. But that of course is just one of you know the vast benefits that they do provide us, like you've mentioned there. So coastal protection is a huge one. So there was a study, particularly when we talk about salt marshes. So there was a study which found that salt marshes can actually reduce wave height here in the UK by 80%. So that's, you know, super important for our coastal coastal developments, coastal communities, particularly as, you know, with ongoing climate change, we're going to see more intense storm events, rising seas. And that, again, that's just one of the many other ones. So, you know, they're biodiversity hotspots, really important for even commercially important fishery species that local communities can rely upon as well. So one of the things that I quite like when we, we're talking about these habitats is that protecting them is known as this kind of triple win. So, you know, we're protecting them for the climate, for biodiversity, but also for people as well. So, you know, whether whether we are focusing on blue carbon and this climate change mitigation potential, you know, it's well within our interest to protect these habitats because, because of all of these other co-benefits that we've mentioned there and, you know, biodiversity and for people too. That's fascinating. And I want to know also where kelp and sort of macroalgae fit into the blue carbon system, right? Where, because kelp is another another massive ecosystem you see in places like Cape Town, South Africa, these colossal kelp forests that much also act in some ways as a shelter for species. They can hide in it from predators, which in turn helps protect our fundamentally our whole global food chain within within the within our oceans, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And that that's some places that I'd absolutely love to to go for a dive or a snorkeling in South Africa or, you know, the Californian big kelp forests. Yeah, so that's it's a really important question, actually, because for a long time, kelp wasn't really considered 
you know as a blue carbon habitat so we do we do mainly refer to as i mentioned before our coastal wetlands so our mangroves salt marshes and seagrasses kelp has kind of been on the periphery but it is being recognized a lot more widely now so the main reason it was kind of you know this almost elephant in the blue carbon room is that with our coastal wetlands they they operate on this you know this process of capturing carbon but then also storing it into their sediments they're all sediment-based habitats and that's where the majority of the carbon is stored so that can be up to like 98% for our salt marshes you know 98% of the carbon stored in their below ground sediments but then you look at kelp and they're attached to rocks by these holdfasts so you might have seen them washed up on beaches they're almost like these claw-like structures really big that's really where the main difference between these habitats are because they don't have the sediment underneath them to be able to to store that carbon away for long periods of time like our coastal wetlands do so you know our coastal wetlands they operate on the capture and storage of carbon but i'd say kelp operates more on this capture and export of carbon so they can still contribute to blue carbon in huge ways because when they're, you know, they're ripped up or kelp detritus, which you see washed on shore, that's still a really important source of carbon that can be reworked into, you know, marine sediments, whether that's deep sea sediments or, you know, captured by our, our salt marshes, our seagrasses and trapped within their habitats. And, you know, it's super important because for seagrasses in particular, there are some cases where actually 50% of the carbon that is found buried in the seagrass habitat hasn't actually originated from seagrass itself. So, you know, these are things like you know, kelp or any other carbon that's washed in on the tide. And any other, I guess, these species, right? I mean, I think there are so many organisms within our marine environments which are carbon capture, whether it's plankton or otherwise, and obviously whales. So all of that almost dying and descending through the body of water and ending up on the bed is held there by these ecosystems, right? And not getting washed away and and moved around too much. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why it's so important, particularly when we're talking about protection of these habitats, that we're not just looking at it for, you know, a single habitat, but actually on seascapes itself, you know, it's so interconnected, the marine environment, that it's super important to consider all of these factors. I really appreciated your, the triple win, was the term that you use and actually because it's important I mean just to recap on what we've just been talking about so the three sort of main reasons why blue carbon is so important is not just because of its nursery for so many fish species and obviously a a nice sheltered ground for so many different species within our waters and obviously capturing carbon and obviously helping to protect and buffer our coastlines from the ever-increasing risks, threats and actual events of storm surges and you know hurricanes and, and rising sea levels, they're obviously being threatened, right? I mean, that's the most important element in some ways is that we know now how precious these environments and ecosystems are, but there is a lot going on which isn't helping them. What are some of those major threats, Luce? Yeah, so I think you're, you're spot on there that sadly these are actually some of the most threatened habitats in the world, despite, you know, despite all of their importance that they provide to us. So we have, you know, around the world, we've seen the loss of about half of our coastal wetlands now. So, you know, our salt marshes, seagrasses and mangroves. And that's obviously reflected largely here in the UK as well. So there was a study, I think this this was only a few months ago that was published. And they found that we've actually lost 92% of our seagrass meadows here in the UK. 
And almost half of that loss has actually occurred, you know, since the 1980s. So really relatively on a recent scale. So the list, the list of threats are, they're long, they're vast. But I guess some of, some of the main ones really, coastal development. So a big one is runoff and pollution entering the seas. So just an example there, you think of our seagrass habitats. So they're flowering plants, they live fully submerged under the water, but they need sunlight to be able to penetrate down into the water for photosynthesis. So if you've got this pollution and runoff, which makes the water cloudy or reduces the clarity, that's going to affect them hugely. And then thinking more about the tropics here with mangroves, you know, there's been so much deforestation in the past. And this is mainly for conversion of the areas into aquaculture ponds for, for shrimps. And then even things like, you know, we, we t- spoke about this before the podcast, but, the you know, boat anchors and, you know, that can rip up the seabed fishing practices like bottom trawling. Anything really that can can have a damage on the the seabed is particularly harmful and especially for delicate seagrass habitats too. And I think it it is really important to not only talk about how important these habitats are, but also how threatened they are, because we're not just interested because of the blue carbon or the climate change mitigation, but also because of how quickly they can shift from being these carbon sinks, so these incredible stores of carbon, into being carbon sources, so habitats that actually release carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. And a really good example of that was actually Shark Bay in Western Australia. So this is, I believe it's the largest seagrass meadow in the world. There was a marine heat wave back in about 2010, and it saw this widespread loss of seagrass there. And that actually resulted in carbon dioxide, well, releasing carbon dioxide equivalent to the yearly exhaust of 1.6 million cars. So that is huge, right? That's colossal. Yeah. So, you know, we really need to be aware of these threats so we can protect and conserve these habitats for the benefits they do provide, but also to avoid even more carbon dioxide emissions back into the environment. I think it's also that sort of reminder and perhaps it's something that we're getting better at but I wouldn't say we've always been great at which is evident given where we are now globally but is that everything is so connected so if seagrasses struggle then we're increasing the level of carbon dioxide within our ecosystems as a non-captured carbon dioxide which is free terrain which facilitates things like climate change which then heats the oceans which then has a further impact on any remaining seagrasses and the other ecosystems and it just becomes that's you know what we call obviously the positive sort of feedback loop it just sort of keeps going and keeps almost getting worse because we get caught in a sort of cycle of interconnectivity right and I think there's one thing where we say you know don't drop your anchor on on seagrass beds which unfortunately I think a lot of people are still doing but we're obviously aiming to aiming to change that through conversations like this but it's not just that you're damaging that seagrass right there the concept is so much bigger and it's connected to the air that you're breathing it's connected to the food that you're eating it's connected to the temperatures and weather systems that you're living in ultimately I mean this is it's difficult because it's so huge and so interconnected but inherently we almost should start thinking a lot bigger about all of the impacts that we're having because it's almost like the proverbial butterfly effect right what you do here just keeps going in some ways around our global ecosystem in a myriad of different ways 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it can be a bit overwhelming, can't it, really, if you you think about it on this, this large scale, but you have to, really. As you say, it's just, it's so interconnected, and especially the ocean itself, it, it plays such a huge role in climate that we really need to, really need to protect it and all the habitats and, you know, the biodiversity that's within it. I think also it's kind of, it's what can we appreciate, you know, you think about grass in your garden, and you just, you know, often mistake it for being this big mass of green green blades very pretty lovely to walk on and great obviously to slow down rainwater and and for wildflowers and stuff but actually if you stick your head on your lawn and you see the variety literally of creatures I almost did this the other day just to prove my own point (laughs) but you see the variety creatures that are just you know that almost invisible to the if you're standing up and stuff that are just living and working in this almost perfect clockwork synchronicity of living, breeding, feeding, dying, living, breeding, all of this kind of captured in what we seem to be this sort of inanimate ecosystem. And all of that is happening underwater. I mean, you know, whether it's it's tiny seahorses laying their eggs in these seagrasses, you can't see that when you're on a boat. You can't see it when you're on your paddleboard. You often can't see it even if you're just snorkeling with your head under the water. But all of this this crazy amount of life is, is just working alongside us the whole time. And I think what's great about certainly people on appreciate your massive ocean optimist which is incredibly important and I want to talk about that in a minute but about so many people within the marine conservation sector and marine biologists and actually people who've got that inherent interest in in our environment showing now and social media makes it so much more easy to find and see exactly what's happening beneath our water lines I hope you can't hear those seagulls right now because they're <laughs> crazy it's a lovely backdrop. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. If they carry on, I want to have to say something. Um, <laughs> I haven't yet stuck my head in, in my grass, in my garden, but that might be something for this afternoon. But I think it is so true what you're saying. And this is why conversations like this are so important, because one of my favourite quotes, which I kind of live by, is that people will only protect what they love. They'll only love what they understand and they'll only understand what they're taught. So these kind of conversations, even just in an informal way, are, you know, they're super important, really helpful. Because as you say, particularly with the ocean, it's very, can be very out of sight, out of mind. So absolutely. That's a very good point. And I love, I love that quote. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that one. I want to know also, because appreciating that we live in a, society where information is fast moving and buzz terms are prolific and blue carbon we're hearing a lot about and in and of itself blue carbon it seems quite again quite abstract quite amorphous in what it could mean and is there a threat or is there a danger do you feel from being research around blue carbon that it becomes another buzzword that it becomes a a kind of term Is, is it the next big thing and then we kind of move past it onto the next kind of exciting opportunity or is it something that you feel that we're really going to make strides in yeah I, I absolutely love that question actually particularly because you know as you're saying blue carbon had does seem to have come out of nowhere really in the past couple of years so I started my PhD only a few years ago at the end of 2018 and even then you know talking to people within the marine science community people didn't know what blue carbon was but now it's something that's that's spoken about everywhere you know it's you can't really talk about the ocean and climate change without mentioning blue carbon in, in some context. So personally, for me, that's really exciting. It's still a young research field, continuously gaining this momentum. And it's quite nice to be to be on the ground with it. But it, it can be very overwhelming, actually. I'm just thinking back to when microplastics became this huge thing. And obviously, they're, you know, they're still going because it's still an issue that we need to 
to address. But I do, when I talk about blue carbon, I do really like to be quite transparent about it. So just like any other nature-based solution, it is only one part of the puzzle when we're talking about, you know, the climate crisis. So whilst it's important to utilise it and we're going to gain so many other benefits from protecting and conserving these habitats too, but it doesn't, it it certainly doesn't provide an alternative to decarbonising economies. It has to be accompanied by reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. That's the main issue that I see with blue carbon is that I am concerned that companies, you know, big corporations are going to begin to, they're going to jump on it, you know, restoration, and they're going to start to potentially use that as a means to to cover up the fact that they're not actually cutting down on their emissions, but they're still, you know, they're appearing to be eco-friendly, sustainable, and yeah, that that is a bit of a concern, really, because we've so we've just entered the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. So this, for anyone who doesn't know, that's just this big global cooperation to kind of prevent, halt, and reverse the degradation and damage of our ecosystems. And with this, there's coming a lot more opportunities for coastal habitat restoration and this huge interest in blue carbon. So. There's certainly going to be a lot of interest from companies and people looking to get involved, which is great. And to be honest, you know, even if blue carbon is this kind of buzz term, it's never going to be a bad thing, really, if we're actively restoring and conserving these habitats because of all the benefits that they do provide us. Mm. I think that's fair. But the point also to bring home, as you as you mentioned, is that it's as well as not instead of. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. we saw that in the sort of. In the plastics industry, dare I say, you know, there was this, you know, plastic production has been, you know, prevalent predominantly since, say, the, the 60s and 70s. And certainly within marine, it's this awesome, awesome resource, right? I mean, plastic can be really fantastic. There is no denying that. Obviously, things like single-use plastic and end-of-life plastic and how we deal with it is a massive issue. And we came along with this concept of recycling, which is almost invented by plastic corporations and plastic producers to justify keeping producing plastic because it was going somewhere it was being recycled it was almost that kind of it's okay we can carry on because this is happening and I guess to your point of just thinking about it is that there could be a danger that we carry on the way that we are just thinking oh yeah blue carbon we'll keep planting seagrass beds and and not chopping down mangroves and too much coastal development but we'll carry on with the way that we've been sort of living our lives over the last you know, 50, 100 plus years, which obviously isn't working for us. So I do appreciate that blue carbon is almost another tool in our toolkit, as opposed to the new and only one, and we continue life as normal. Yeah, and I think on that point as well, it's it's really important to be aware of the fact that, you know, when we're talking about coastal restoration, whether that's replanting seagrass seeds or with salt marshes, this is called managed realignment, where it's just the breaching of coastal defences, allowing salt water to flood in. You know, the, the time it takes for these restored sites to actually build up their carbon stores to be equivalent to that of their, you know, their natural seagrass or salt marsh sites is tremendous. It's not something that happens overnight. So I think they found with you know, there was this study on, there's a lot of restoration in Essex for salt marshes. And there was a study, I think they estimated that, you know, it'd take about 100 years for this restored salt marsh site to have the equivalent carbon storage of that of the, the neighbouring natural salt marsh site. So restoration, it's important, but I do, I also think it it should almost be secondary behind conserving and protecting what we, what is already there. Sure. I mean, you're right, we're talking about these ecosystems have existed for hundreds, thousands, in some cases, millions of years. 
Mm. And we're destroying them and then replanting them and expecting in some ways that they're going to help solving our problems within the next six months. <laughs> and actually they've taken so long. I mean, it's the same in some ways, the argument around corals, you know, these are structures that take thousands of years to grow to the stage they are where they can be, com- you know, completely, dare I say, effective in the way that ideally we would like them to be given, given where we're at globally. So restoration is, is great alongside, I guess, but to your point, the most important action we can take is conserving them and not damaging them in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And do you, I mean, appreciating that we aren't quite, despite what we know, I mean, you mentioned that obviously blue carbon really has been around, say, since 2009, that it's a relatively new field of research, but we're getting it, right? We're hearing so much more around the value of these ecosystems and how incredibly important they are for all of those the triple wins that we mentioned before but there are some things that I find still a little bit worrying is that even today in the in the media you see you know how these deep sea mining permits have been granted and appreciate this is a whole nother topic but we're still we're still marching towards disrupting ecosystems that have never been touched on the history of this planet I mean deep sea is you know we call it the abyss right as a sort of more, I wouldn't say scientific, but sort of oceanographic term. The abyss is, you know, 11 kilometers deep. I mean, this is the deepest, deepest, deep, deep <laughs> that you can get on this planet. And we're talking about taking, you know, mining and drilling systems down there to rake up resources like cobalt, which we need for batteries. And there are very few places on this planet that we can mine cobalt. The DRC Congo is one of the places. And that's not always easy for, for obvious socio-political reasons, but we're still advancing towards destruction of habitats, which we've never even touched before. And I can't sometimes not be the party pooper, but sometimes still can't get my head around that. How slow sometimes we're we're learning or not learning in that case, right? I mean, that could also have massive impacts on release of further CO2 Mm -hmm. and carbon into our ecosystems if those kind of projects go ahead. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's there's certainly a lot more appreciation of seabed carbon storage now. And, you know, as we've been saying, you know, marine sediments are the largest pool of carbon storage that, that we have. So I think you you might have seen there was that report which came out. This this is recent, actually, it's a few months ago with this huge headline that's been published everywhere saying, you know, bottom trawling. So that that method of fishing, which drags those heavy nets across the seabed actually releases as much carbon dioxide as the entire aviation industry, which is just an insane finding, right? So, yeah, I think this is not something that I know a huge amount about. But what I know from that study is that when we talk about emissions from the aviation industry, obviously that's carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. But when we're talking about the release of carbon from the seabed, that can just release it into the water. So, That has a whole new other impact with ocean acidification. That is particularly bad news, you know, for species with hard shells and skeletons, like we've already mentioned, coral reefs. That is reducing the amount of carbon that they have to to be able to build their structures. Mm. But that's just because I love my blue carbon habitats. I can't help myself. But just to bring it back to them, so they can, another amazing, you know, benefit of these habitats is that they can actually provide local refuges from ocean acidification because they obviously absorb vast amounts of carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. So they can provide this kind of local area of oxygenation for species that live there too. That is fascinating, hey? That's almost like 
the fourth of the triple win. We should probably change that. <laughs> kind of yeah. add the oxygenation effect to the list. <laughs> I think I think you're onto something there, Luz. I mean, I appreciate it's like we said, it's it's incredibly complicated, but I think almost why we should be so fascinated and why we should be so proud of this this place we call home is because of that interconnectivity and that complexity, right? It's taken thousands and millions of years, as I mentioned, for us to find this, get to this stability of an equilibrium amongst millions of species and so many determining factors, whether it's heat, weather, ocean, ocean pH, whatever else, to all come together in this perfect mix to give us, you know, a stable and healthy planet to live on. And it's very easy then for us to start pulling at those threads and it will gently start unraveling, which is obviously where, where we kind of are. But I want to switch to the fact on that note that you, obviously it's important for you to be optimistic around the ocean, right? And it's important actually for all of us because it's something to be celebrated. Our global ecosystem is awesome and something that we should be appreciating and protecting. So Knowing what you know and knowing what you research and all the the good, the bad and the particularly ugly, what is it that gives you optimism as an ocean optimist? Actually, the main thing that that I really think is this huge community of marine scientists. So particularly just from seeing on socials, you've got, you know, this huge community of women in marine science. I absolutely love it. And again, we spoke about this just before the podcast started, because I was on a Meet the Researchers panel for school students this morning. And these students, these young, young people, they are just so passionate and fearless. And I think we're in really good hands with them, really. They as you say, they don't accept any BS. They're just going to they're going to go for it. So really, that's it's people around me that I think that I, you know, I can bounce off with a bit of ocean optimism. But I think another reason I, I like to say I'm an ocean optimist and I, you know, this has kind of shaped my career and my interests really is because I, I worry that often when we do talk about the ocean, it can be in quite a negative way. Obviously, we do. We need to address these threats and we need to talk about them. But it can also, you know, kind of scare people into inaction thinking, it's too late you know like what can we do now there's nothing I can do as an individual and that that concerns me more than anything so I think that's why I feel like I I have to stay optimistic but I yeah I I am I am optimistic I think it's it's never too late obviously particularly with climate change it's not something that we can ever reverse climate change but it is something that we can lessen the impacts of but yeah it's a tough task ahead, but there's plenty of people passionate enough about it and, you know, willing to willing to put the work in. So, yeah, we can we can do it. I think it's poignant almost to return to, to the lovely quote you mentioned earlier around people only protect. We only protect what we love. Yeah. So people will only protect what they love. They'll only love what they understand and they'll only understand what they're taught. Which is why these conversations and our kind of roles and everybody else's and just sharing what we're finding and, and the positive steps we can take is as important now, if not more important now than, than ever before. So let's keep at them. Yeah, that sounds good. Lucy, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been such a fantastic conversation about Blue Carbon and we will be sharing some more information and also a link to your profile, et cetera, along with this podcast because you're well worth watching and keeping up to date with. So keep us up to date with your news, what you're finding in this bit to better understand our ocean ecosystems and how we can help out. Great. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me, Holly. That was a great chat. Cool. 
You've been listening to the Clean Sailors podcast. All relevant links to the projects and people we talk to can be found with the podcast link. For all episodes or to get in touch, just visit cleansailors.com. We love to hear from you. We believe that great ideas should be shared, which is why our podcast is free to appear on. So if you've got a project, idea or topic you think we should be discussing, get in touch. In the meantime, thank you for listening and see you for the next episode. Thank you.